Turn with me again this morning to the book of Lamentations. We continue in our series there. Uh, Now to chapter 3. And we're going to, as with the other chapters, take a couple of weeks to look at this chapter. And uh, we're not going to go straight through this one, though. I'm going to read the first 24 verses uh, and then verses 43 to 59. And then we'll come back uh, to pick up the middle part uh, in a few weeks. So here, God's holy word, Jeremiah chapter, sorry, Lamentations uh, chapter 3. Uh, written by Jeremiah. I am the man who has seen affliction because of the rod of his wrath. He has driven me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely against me he has turned his hand repeatedly all the day. He has caused my flesh and my skin to waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and encompassed me with bitterness and hardship. In dark places he has made me dwell like those who have long been dead. He's walled me in so that I cannot go out. He's made my chain heavy. Even when I cry out and call for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with hewn stone. He's made my paths crooked. He is to me like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in secret places. He's turned aside my ways and torn me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He's bent his bow and set me as the target for the arrow. He made the arrows of his quiver to enter into my inward parts. I've become a laughingstock to all my people, their mocking song all the day. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drunk with wormwood. He's broken my teeth with gravel. He's made me cower in the dust. My soul has been rejected from peace. I've forgotten happiness. So I say my strength has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to my mind. Therefore, I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. For they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And then down to verse 43. Uh, We've been reading the the voice of the, the single speaker, and now it's all of the people together speaking. You have covered yourself with anger and pursued us. You have slain and not spared. You have covered yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. You have made us mere off-scouring and refuse in the midst of the peoples. All our enemies have opened their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall have befallen us. Devastation and destruction. And then back to the voice of the one man. My eyes run down with streams of water because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes pour down unceasingly without stopping until the Lord looks down and sees from heaven. My eyes bring pain to my soul because of all the daughters of my city. My enemies without cause hunted me down like a bird. They have silenced me in the pit and have placed a stone on me. Waters flowed over my head. I said, I am cut off. I called on your name, O Lord, out of the lowest pit. You have heard my voice. Do not hide your ear from my prayer for relief, from my cry for help. You drew near when I called to you. You said, do not fear. O Lord, you have pleaded my soul's cause. You have redeemed my life. O Lord, you have seen my oppression. Judge my case. We'll end our reading there. There's a remarkable and frustrating reality 
in our modern world, which is that people often don't read your emails well, at least. Uh, how often have you sent an email uh, only to get no response or to get a response and realize that people were not, uh, they were missing the main request in your email or didn't, obviously didn't read the whole thing? Um, this is true even though email is, is so convenient and easy and uh, probably largely because of such an inundation that we all have with email, uh, but also our, our attention spans have become small and, and scattered. Uh, there are extensive studies and strategies out there to combat this. It's, it's said, sadly, that you have to really put your, your main request in the first line of your email to expect people to... Uh, to get it. Um, I will sometimes put one sentence in all caps or all bolds, uh, guessing that may be the only thing that gets that gets noticed, that needs to be noticed. Uh, that's sort of the e email equivalent that we use, that kind of thing of a, a big neon sign or a banner uh, that says, this is, this is what I want you to see, what I want you to notice. Well, in terms of Hebrew poetry, Jeremiah in this book that uh, probably most of us have skipped or skimmed like an email uh, for, for uh, much of our lives. Um, Jeremiah has put uh, big bold letters or a big neon sign, if you will, over one of these five poems in particular. Um, that's chapter three, uh, the chapter that we've come to now. And there are several things that serve to highlight this poem, chapter three, particularly. Uh, so one is, if you remember back a number of weeks ago when we, at the very beginning of this study, we talked about the fact that Lamentations is uh, organized as a, a chiasm. And a chiasm is just a, a Hebrew literary device where the, the first item in a poem or a book or a chapter and the last item are parallel. They're, they're the same topic. And then the second and the second to last are parallel. And, and on and on. It can be any, any length, but it obviously serves to highlight what's in the middle. It's fairly different than how we expect... Uh, things to be in our, our modern literature, uh, usually building to a main point or a climax at the end, uh, but often Hebrew poetry e emphasizes something in the middle. A lot of the psalms function that way. Uh, you find the main point of the psalm in the middle, uh, and that's true of lamentation. So um, chapter 3, another thing that highlights chapter 3, uh, recall that these poems are acrostics. So each of the poems uh, has 22 stanzas, reflected in 22 verses in these chapters. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. So each uh, stanza begins with the next letter, the corresponding letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Well, chapter 3, that acrostic pattern is, is tripled uh, in a sense. It, it not, not only is the beginning of the stanza begin with uh, that letter, but all three lines in each stanza begin uh, three times with the corresponding letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And that's sort of reflected in our English Bibles here in that uh, it's the same length of the chapter, but it's, it's given 66 verses. Um, it's, it's tripled. Um, another thing, uh, we talked about the fact that in the first two chapters, uh, this, this singular speaker uh, broke in halfway through, interrupted the narrator at verse 11 in chapter 1 and chapter 2, and, and began speaking for himself in the first person. I, me, my. Uh, well, here in chapter 3 now, it begins with this speaker. He, he steps out at the beginning and says, I am the man, uh, from the very beginning of the chapter. Uh, and calls attention to himself and essentially says, the most significant grief and suffering is mine. 
Um, and it's not because the suffering of Jerusalem is all over. Nothing has changed. We have two more chapters still of deep lament and grief. And yet intertwined in this chapter particularly are this, this focus on the one man's suffering uh, and then also the great confidence and hope, these great and well-known statements of confidence and hope uh, right in the middle here that we've read this morning. So I'd like to look first, uh, as you look at number one in your outline in your bulletin, at the, how, how this, this man, the man who steps forward in verse one, describes his suffering. So in the first 17 verses or so, there are various metaphors he uses to describe his suffering. And the first, uh, interestingly, is shepherding. Uh, is shepherding. Verse one mentions a rod, which in, in Hebrew, this is, this is a shepherd's rod. Um, but as, as Christopher Wright comments, he says this is, a, this is an inverted shepherding metaphor. Uh, we're familiar with the shepherding metaphor for God, Psalm 23 especially, in the Old Testament. Um, but here, the shepherding metaphor is it's turned on its head. It's, it's a perverted shepherding metaphor, if you will. Um, uh, the rod was a tool of the shepherd, not, not the staff, but the rod was a... Uh, a big stick, maybe bigger on the end. It might have stone or even metal on the end. It was a weapon. It was a weapon of defense uh, to, to defend uh, the sheep uh, from threats. Psalm 23 mentions the rod, the rod and the staff. But the rod is said to give comfort right, to the sheep right? because the, the shepherd uses it to defend. Well, here in this description, these first six verses or so, uh, the shepherd is turned against the sheep. It seems verse two, uh, for example, he has driven me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. So here are the, the images of leading the sheep with the rod, but driving them not not through dark places into nice light places, but the opposite. Uh, and, and as we go on through these verses, it's it's basically Psalm 23 uh, reversed. Uh, verse three, that the shepherd's hand is against him, not for him. Verse five, it's not leading him to quiet waters and green pastures, but to hardship. Uh, verse six, he's not leading uh, him through the valley of shadow of death, but to dark places of death. That's where they end up. Uh, recall chapter two. We, we talked about this. This is really describing again the fact that God is, or the idea that God is appearing like an enemy. Like an enemy because of the stubborn sin of his people. Uh, verses 7 to 9, the basic idea is he feels walled in and imprisoned. It's a loss of, loss of freedom or prosperity. Verse uh, 7, he has walled me in so I cannot go out. Uh, verse 10 to 13, the idea is, is being hunted. Uh, maybe, again, sort of reversing the, the good shepherd uh, metaphor. Uh, verse 12 he even says, He's bent his bow and set me as the target for the arrow. Imagine a target practice. He feels like God has taken him by the neck and hung him up in the tree as the target uh, for bow and arrow practice. And then verse 14 speaks of being mocked and derided. I've become a laughing stock. Um, and we don't have time to look at all the details here, but these, these metaphors continue through verse 20. But I want to move to uh, point number two on your outline and then note the powerful hope that breaks in suddenly uh, after all of these terrible metaphors for his suffering. So looking at number two on your outline, suddenly after explaining how God's judgment against him is like a, 
uh, a shepherd turned bad uh, is like target practice against him. Verse 21, we read, suddenly, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Well, where does that come from? We didn't read of anything uh, changing particularly. So I would suggest we have two major questions to face uh, to answer about this chapter at this point. Uh, The first is, who is this man? The man that begins, I am the man who is suffering here. Uh, And then secondly, where does this sudden faith and confidence and hope come from? Uh, How does it suddenly warrant it? Again, because nothing has changed in in Jerusalem's circumstances, in the horrible uh, ordeal that they're going through. So I want to dig into this expression of hope a little bit more and then consider who this man is and then how those two things are related to each other. Uh, Look at verse 22 again. The the first line in verse 22 is actually a a, a translation choice to be made here by translators. And so you'll find uh, two really two different versions of this in different our our different English Bibles. Um, There's one slight discrepancy between ancient manuscripts relative to the verb here. So the verb is uh, to cease or to be ended or to be consumed, something like that. Um, and, and the variant is that it's, it's either, uh, the, the verb is either in the third person singular or it's in the first person plural. If, if you're not a, a grammar nut, that means it's either saying uh, it is not ended or ceased or consumed or it's saying we uh, it's, it's a bunch of people speaking together here. We are not consumed. We are not ended. Um, the, the New American Standard here has gone with the what is really the minority report, uh, if you will, the, the less attested reading. Um, that doesn't mean it's less likely necessarily. But uh, probably they've made that choice because it, it's, it's maybe a little hard to make sense of it, it's the man, this singular person speaking, uh, beyond where we read even, and suddenly you have one or two verses where, where a corporate voice breaks in. How do we make sense of that? Uh, suddenly there's a bunch of people speaking uh, here. Um, but I want to suggest that that in fact does make sense to go with the, what is really the majority reading here, that it's, it is the people of Jerusalem presumably breaking forth in sudden hope and, and confidence and faith in God. This is how, for example, the NIV takes it. Uh, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. You see the subject taken there is we. We are the ones who are not destroyed or consumed. Uh, Either either way is a true statement biblically, right? It's God's love and kindness that doesn't end. uh, Or it's we, God's people, who don't end or consume. The New King James, same. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. And if this is the people... Suddenly speaking, it would seem that their, their hope and their confidence that suddenly breaks out is somehow tied closely to what the man, the single man here is saying and his unique suffering. Um, a lot of commentators note that, that connection. Uh, Christopher Wright, for example, says this, this man has something in, in common with uh, the suffering servant in Isaiah. Uh, so the suffering servant in Isaiah, he shares in Israel's suffering. He identifies with them. But then he's also separate from them. He speaks to them. Um, 
he, he counsels them and he suffers in their place. Uh, right? And others suggest, the heading in my Bible even suggests that this is Jeremiah himself speaking here, uh, speaking for himself uh, as, a, as a type of Christ, a, a symbol, an embodiment of, of what the role of Christ would be. Um, there are other prophets who were called by God to embody particular parts of Israel's experience. Even, even to suffer in a way that pointed uh, forward to Christ. Um, certainly, uh, David's experience and David's words in the Psalms transcend simply his own experience and point us to Christ. Uh, I think that's at least what's going on here. It's at least Jeremiah speaking as, as someone who's pointing us to Christ. But uh, looking at all the evidence in chapter 3, I think there's good reason, as I've already indicated uh, in past weeks, to see this voice that's not named as, as more directly expressive and representative of the person and work of the Messiah, uh, of Jesus. It's because of his suffering as Savior that, that even in the midst of their own suffering, uh, that the people can suddenly be pictured as expressing great hope and confidence and trust. Uh, just, just listen. This isn't the only place in the Old, Old Testament where those two things are intertwined. One person suffering and then the corporate voice expressing great hope. Uh, Isaiah 53 is the, the best example of that. Uh, listen to just one, voice, one verse in Isaiah 53 as an example. It's about the suffering of one person, but the people collectively uh, express hope. It says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Uh, so I, I want you to consider four ways that you see on your outline there that this, this man's voice and suffering point us uh, unmistakably to Jesus. So first uh, is his taunting that he talks about here. His taunting. Uh, the, the book of Lamentations several times talks about the, the taunting, the mocking of what's going on in Jerusalem of the nations. It, it pictures the nations walking by, as it were, and saying, look at you now, and, and mocking Jerusalem. They're, they're in such a mess. Their religion is empty now. But here in verse 14, the, the single man here speaking says what? I have become a laughingstock to all my people. Uh, when he speaks... It's his own people who are mocking him. It, it seems a strange turn here. He was just identifying with them in their suffering, uh, speaking for them. Now they've turned on him. He says, it's my own people who are taunting me. And that, of course, is consistent with, with the Old Testament's anticipation of the Messiah, Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, but also the gospel accounts of Jesus. He came to his own for their sake, right? But his own did not re- did, did not receive him. Uh, they they ended up talk, taunting him, mocking him, killing him. Uh, secondly, uh, is his glory, his glory. Verse, uh, look at verse 17 again. The end of verse 17 begins, "I have forgotten happiness, and so I say, my strength has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord." He's he's remembering something that he had before. Uh, his, his strength and his hope that he had before the Lord uh, or from the Lord. In verse 20 and 21, again, he's remembering. Surely my soul remembers. This I recall to my mind. Uh, he's remembering the strength and the hope he says he had before the Lord. Uh, the word that's translated strength there 
Not the, not the usual word that would be strength, uh, translated strength in, in our Old Testaments. Um, the word denotes, it, it's a big concept, it's hard to capture in one English word, but it's, it's glory, uh, it's, it's eternality, um, it's, um, the, the NIV uses a word that's commonly chosen, maybe most commonly chosen to translate, which is splendor, uh, splendor or glory. Uh, one commentator notes that as a personal attribute, this word, this Hebrew word, uh, belongs to God alone. It's never attributed once in the Bible uh, to, to a mere man, to a person. Uh, God, splendor belongs to God. Uh, here's a couple examples. First Chronicles 29. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory or the splendor. Same word. And the victory and the majesty. Um, it belongs to God. First Samuel 15 is an example of where it's used as a, a title for God. He is the glory of Israel or the splendor of Israel. And so interestingly, this man says that he had this glory, this, this attribute with God before. And he's lamenting that. He's remembering that. Again, in verse 21, or verse 20 and verse 21, my soul remembers this. I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. So what's giving him his hope? He's, he's remembering this splendor that he had, this glory he had together with God previously. And it would seem he's, he's anticipating having it again. Suddenly, he says, I have hope. This is another piece, I think, that points to hearing the voice of Jesus here. Think of uh, Philippians chapter 2, for example, which describes that though Jesus was glorious God, uh, he, he emptied himself. Right, taking the form of servant. And then Paul goes right back to, he, then he was glorified again. And even more so, uh, what we read earlier from John 17, we find Jesus praying to the Father, they're remembering the glory that he had with the Father before and looking forward to his return to that. Uh, verse 5 again, he says, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I think clearly this is a man who's not merely a man who, who shares somehow in the glory of God, but is, is suffering under the judgment of God for a time. But he has hope now as he, as, he, as he anticipates returning to that. Even more tellingly, thirdly, letter C on your outline, he pleads his innocence. Uh, the speaker here, the voice of the Messiah, I believe, pleads his innocence. Uh, so we, we picked up again at verse 43, which again was the voice of the people. And then the, the, the voice of the man comes back in at verse 48 uh, suddenly. Uh, when the people were speaking, they continued to talk about this disaster in Jerusalem as it, their own sins brought this about. Right? This, this was their doing because of their rebellion. So verse 39, they said, Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? How, how can we complain against God in view of our guilt? Uh, verse 42, they said, We have transgressed and rebelled. Again, they're just repeating what's been clear already in the book here. But then when the man speaks again, in verse 52, in great contrast, he says, for example, my enemies without cause hunted me down. There's no cause for his suffering. It's, it's innocent. And in verse 59, he says, O oh Lord, you have seen my oppression, a word that obviously connotes injustice. And then he calls God, you uh, judge my case. 
He, He anticipates God pronouncing him innocent. I've been oppressed, judge me. And so the, the voice here, the, the Savior here, clearly shares in the suffering of the people somehow. He shares in their grief and their lament, but he does not share in their guilt at all. He doesn't share in their sin. He, he suffers without cause. He expects God to judge his case and, and completely vindicate him. Again, it's very much like Isaiah 53, where there's one person suffering, Isaiah 53 There's that one verse that says, we all have gone astray like sheep, right? This is our fault, but our fault was placed on him. God placed the iniquity of us all on him. There are other places in the Old Testament where a singular voice, a type of Christ, makes a similar plea. Psalm 35, they hated me without cause. Psalm 69, they hated me without cause. And then Jesus In John 15, when he's explaining to his disciples why people hate him and reject him and why they'll reject them as well, uh, John 15, he says, The the word that is written in the law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. He he points them to all these places in the scripture where uh, someone suffers unjustly. He's saying he, he is the fulfillment of that. Uh, He suffers innocently in their place. And then fourthly, uh, letter D, uh, he speaks even, it would seem, of his death and resurrection. His death and resurrection. Look at verse 53, where it, it sort of climaxes here with him saying, they have silenced me in the pit uh, and have placed a stone on me. And, and pit is the word for the grave there. Um, it, it seems clearly to picture death and burial. Uh, Placing a stone over him. Verse 54 is uh, the image of of death through the image of of drowning, it seems. Again, it's very much like Isaiah 53, uh, where he's led like a lamb to the slaughter. The suffering in Isaiah 53 ends in death as well. Uh, But then the Savior, the voice here, pictures and anticipates having been heard and rescued out of death. Verse 56, you have heard my voice. Suddenly, he had been pleading earlier, my prayers aren't even getting out of the walls here. But now he's heard. Verse 58, you have redeemed my life. And again, it's very different from uh, what the narrator says in Lamentations. It's different totally from what the people say in Lamentations. Um, Nothing like that has been experienced in Jerusalem yet. Things are not fixed. But it's very similar to the turning point in Psalm 22, for example. Psalm 22, the words that Jesus took on on his lips on the cross and described in some very particular ways his crucifixion. And then suddenly, right in the middle of Psalm 22, it's, you've answered me. And the rest of the psalm is rejoicing, uh, picturing the resurrection. Uh, Peter, in in 1 Peter chapter 1, says of the prophets in the Old Testament that it was the Spirit of Christ speaking through them Uh, To show, what? Two things. The sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories of Christ. It was the Spirit of Christ speaking through Jeremiah and the other prophets to show the sufferings of Christ and the glory of Christ. That was was Peter's summary of the Old Testament. Uh, Some places that's particularly clear in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, again, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. A place where it's very clear the substitutionary suffering of Jesus for his people. And and though it's not as well known, uh, Lamentations 3, I think it's no less clear here. Lamentations 3 pictures uh, a people who, despite wallowing in their own sin and guilt and their suffering, great grief and, and shame and feeling hopeless, Yet they they turn and recognize their Savior, as it were, in the middle of the chapter here. A God who identifies with them, who suffers with them, and more than that, suffers in their place. And in love and compassion for them. We talked about the compassion and grieving for them last week in chapter 2. He steps in front of the blows of God's ultimate judgment so that they would be redeemed. I think that's what, that's what produces these, this explosion of hope and joy and confidence. They recognize that as horrible as, as what they're suffering in Jerusalem at this time is, it's not the full judgment, it's not the final judgment. They've been given an opportunity to repent, a call back to their gracious God with, with arms wide open. And the suffering of this city and the suffering of this one man uh, overlapped to a large degree so far in this book, the first couple of chapters. But at this point in chapter 3, he he steps forward, as it were, and says, I am the man. He calls particular attention to, to his suffering. I am the one being rejected by the Lord. And when the people recognize in him uh, the, the love of a God who, when, when everything else failed, because they had been so stubborn and so evil and so um, ungrateful, They recognized a God who would take the cost upon himself in the person of one man uh, and suffer for them. And so they cry out, suddenly, the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. Or uh, because of the Lord's loving kindness, we are not consumed. His compassions never fail. It brings them to a new experience of the mercies of God. Uh, And and this is where I want to look at, at number three on your outline And particularly, uh, verse 23. I think I I printed it wrong in your outline, actually. It should say, hope experienced. Hope experienced. They express their experience of new hope. Verse 23 says, they are new, that is, his compassions or mercies. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Bible uses morning as an image of, of hope and renewal after a long dark night, right? And darkness and night are is a frequent figure of of bad things, scary things, judgment, and so on. Um, and and the statement here, they are new every morning. God's mercies are new every morning. Is not a trite statement like, oh, it'll work out all okay in the end, or um, you know, look on the bright side. Um, it's it's much deeper than that. Uh, the idea of new morning mercies is the, the the Hebrew word doesn't mean something totally brand new, unknown before, but renewed, uh, experienced in a new way, a fresh way, a fresh perspective. Um, even in the midst of their great suffering and grief, uh, we're taught in this example to look to the Savior to see what intense grief He has for your grief. Uh, we saw His His weeping, even vomiting in grief in chapter two and seeing his people suffer, um, and see what compassion, what love, that he would suffer the wrath of God for you. Uh, Every morning you have this Savior to see, to know, to experience fresh 
as it were, uh, his faithfulness to you. Uh, Just one example that we'll sing in just a moment here of using the morning in that way. Psalm 143. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. That's that's basically saying, Lord, remind me every morning uh, of your faithfulness. Uh, The Bible's use of the morning, I I think, would have us see the actual morning, the literal morning, uh, as, as an illustration, as a reminder of the mercies of God, as an opportunity every day uh, to, to freshly see the mercies of God. Uh, I want to close with a couple of quotes, the, the last two that are on your, on your half sheet in your bulletin there uh, on this verse here. Uh, first, Williams comments this, we, we may take great encouragement in knowing that tribulations and even the chastening of God are designed to lead us into renewed discoveries of his mercies. God has designed the rising of the sun each day to be a pledge of the promise of his grace and a foretaste of that day when the darkness will not return. Uh, and then Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was uh, a Christian in Germany, was, was executed by the Nazis famously. He says of this verse, he says, Every new morning is a new beginning of our life. Every day is a completed whole. The present day should be the boundary of our care and striving. Uh, It is long enough for us to find God or lose God, to keep faith or to fall into sin and shame. God created day and night so that we would not wander boundlessly, but already in the morning may see the goal of evening before us. As the old sun rises new every day, so the eternal mercies of God are new every morning. To grasp the old faithfulness of God anew every morning, to be able in the middle of life to begin a new life with God daily. Uh, That is the gift that God gives with every new morning. Uh, You and I can wake every morning and know uh, that God died for you. Jesus died for you. He loves you unconditionally. Uh, He calls you uh, into this new day uh, every morning. So don't study the the hard things that you suffer uh, as much as studying your Savior, which I think is pictured for us in Lamentations 3. Uh, Seeing his compassion and love and suffering for you. Uh, so that you would be able to say, the Lord's, because of the Lord's loving kindness, we are not consumed. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you uh, again this week for your word and the book of Lamentations through your servant Jeremiah. Uh, we thank you for the example of great uh, faith and confidence and hope. Uh, bursting even out of great suffering and grief uh, because your mercies uh, are new. Uh, They are there uh, every morning. We can uh, experience them uh, with confidence uh, and in fresh uh, and new ways uh, every day. We pray that you would help us uh, to do that uh, after this example, uh, to see and and know the Lord Jesus in such a way that uh, even as we Uh, suffer and are grieved in many ways, Uh, we, we could have this profession of faith each day, each morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.